Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Samantha Thomas and today I'll be joined by Edison biographer Leonard DeGraff. Mr. DeGraff is an archivist at Thomas Edison National Historic Park and the author of the biography Edison and the Rise of Innovation. Ranked number one by Life Magazine's list of people who made the millennium, Edison is one of the most well-known inventors, remembered not for, just for his patents, which were substantial, but also for his influence on the process of innovation and his impact on industry. So let's let Mr. Leonard DeGraff introduce himself and tell us the story of the historic Edison. Uh, well, my name is Leonard DeGraff, and I'm an archivist at Thomas Edison National Historical Park in West Orange, New Jersey. Uh, the park uh, has Thomas Edison's West Orange Laboratory and his uh, estate, Glenmont, where Edison and his family lived and worked for the last 45 years of his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is now part of the National Park System um, and open to visitors who want to come here and learn about Thomas Edison. My job here at the park uh, involves taking care of this huge collection of documents uh, that were created by Edison and his workers, um, this archives of Edison's lab notebooks, personal correspondence, patents, uh, more than five million documents uh, in total uh, that give us a complete record of Edison's uh, work as an inventor and uh, as an innovator. Uh, my job here is to um, help take care of that stuff and also uh, make it available to researchers. And I first became interested in Thomas Edison many, many years ago when I uh, graduated college and I got a summer job working for this project at Rutgers University called the Thomas Edison Papers Project. And uh, they are still going uh, even today. Um, and they're involved in publishing Edison's papers, um, mostly from the archives here in West Orange. And uh, once I uh, came to work here um, and saw what a great collection it was and all the fascinating stories uh, that, that could be told, I was hooked. And I've been here ever since. And I'm fortunate to work with um, a, a great collection of material, and I learn something new every day. And I was really happy to see some of these these prints you're talking about replicated in your book, which is called mm -hmm. um, Edison and the Rise of Innovation. And and some of them are really fascinating. I mean, you have you have some of his sketches. Yeah, it's and it's a sampling of of, of what we have here. Um, we have his notebooks that give you a real intimate look at um, how he and his workers were trying to uh, work out the problems uh, in the laboratory, um, uh, sketches of, you know, for the, for the uh, incandescent electric lamp and uh, many other inventions. Uh, we also have a, a very cool collection of uh, Edison's pocket notebooks. Um, they're smaller and um, uh, these are the notebooks that he carried around with him all day long um, and uh, he used those to um, manage his the, the the laboratory work and the activities of his companies. And they're very interesting because there's a lot of information in there um, about uh, what he's doing and what he's thinking. There are to-do lists, um, and also uh, he's recording some of his personal uh, 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 affairs. Uh, one of the notebooks that we actually show in the book has a page open to uh, um, uh, uh, where Edison lists all the things
things that he ate on that particular day, <laughs> and it includes um, the uh, the weights. Uh, being you know, being the scientific uh, person that he was, um, he kept real precise uh, measurements of what he was eating. So these are really um, they're intimate records, they're, and they give you an insight into into what he was like as a person. So so he sounds like a very meticulous man. <laughs> Oh yes, he was. He was. He was. Uh, he was very meticulous, and he 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 made a promise to himself when he first started as an inventor. Uh, he was only twenty, twenty-one years old. This is eighteen seventy, um, and he's filling out a notebook with all kinds of ideas. And at the end of the notebook, he says, "From this point on, I'm going to keep a full record of all my experiments." And he basically does that throughout the rest of uh, of his career. Um, for our benefit. For our benefit, um, but do you get the sense that that was important for his his inventions or his process of innovation? Um, oh, yeah, definitely. It's a key part of the process, and it's what helps make him successful because he's keeping uh, he's keeping a record of his ideas um, in part to protect himself uh, if um, uh, he's involved in a patent lawsuit at some point, he can go back and show the court, these are the records of my of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, so he can prove, you know, that 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 um, um, that you know that he was the first inventor of a, of a new invention. Um, um, but he's also keeping records um, that are helping him manage his business. Um, he, we have lots of accounting records here. Um, he's keeping track of what he's spending in the laboratory and, uh, you know, on tools and equipment, the salaries of his workers. Um, and he's paying attention to the costs of innovation as well. And that's very important. Um, uh, so the records are, are, are useful to him. They're, they're definitely uh, very good reasons for him uh, keeping all these notebooks and, and, and papers and preserving them. So, so that is not the typical scientist or scientific genius who's kind of just lost in his work. He's eminently practical, and in fact, he 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 made it a point of um, his experience with his first patented invention, which was an electric uh, vote recorder. Um, mm-hmm. It was designed to allow uh, you know, Congress or state legislatures to um, uh, automatically record votes on bills. And the political leaders said, "You know, Thomas, we don't really want that because we don't want anything that's going to speed up." The legislative process, and this will do that. And and uh, the story that we're told is that Edison at that point uh, made a promise to himself that he wasn't going to invent anything that didn't have uh, a ready market. Um, and it speaks to um, uh, a, a you know important goal of his career, and that is that he was going to invent things that people wanted and people could use. So I think in in our popular imagination, we we kind of know that the light bulb is one of his. Most prominent inventions, but but talk about some other ones. Well, the first, uh, well, the first, um, the first major invention that he sold to consumers was a, a device called the electric pen, um, which comes out in 1875, and that is, um, uh, it looked like a pen. It was shaped like a pen, and it had an electric motor on the top. Uh, it was a hollow tube that had a needle inside. And the electric motor made the needle go up and down as you were riding with it, and it punched holes in a sheet of wax paper, and that's how you created a stencil. Um, and uh, Edison invented the electric pen because he 
understood that there were more and more people working in offices in the 1870s. There were big companies, insurance companies, banks, large institutions, and they're creating a lot of documents and a lot of paperwork. And there was a need for um, technologies that allow people to duplicate, um, you know, forms and other kinds of documents. So that's his first real attempt to, to, to market a, a technology to consumers. But before that, um, he, he becomes well-known as a telegraph inventor. He is inventing uh, different telegraph systems that were um, not sold directly to consumers but were, were um, marketed to telegraph companies. Um, and they were designed to allow these telegraph systems to send messages um, uh, faster and more efficiently. Telegraph is where he, he begins his um, professional career as an inventor. Um, okay. He actually starts out um, working as a telegraph operator in the 1860s. Um, and that was, um, the, the, the telegraph was a very new technology in the 1860s. And there was kind of a, a, a hacker culture um, that attracted um, young young people like Thomas Edison, who were interested in learning about electricity and electrical technology. And there were opportunities uh, in the telegraph industry to make improvements that would um, you know that would that would that would help the telegraph company. And um, uh, that's kind of how Edison got started. He has ideas for improving. Um, sending telegraph messages, and he first uh, uh, goes to Boston in 1869, um, spends time in machine shops working with other people to kind of develop his ideas. Um, and while in Boston, he um, decides that he's not going to be a telegraph operator anymore. He wants to be a professional inventor. Um, that's where he, he gets his, his start uh, in, the, in the telegraph business. And when did Menlo Park come in? When did he move his lab there? He moves to Menlo Park at the end of 1875, okay. and he works there until uh, the early 1880s, about 1882 or so. Um, the Menlo Park lab um, is uh, famous for uh, the tinfoil phonograph and the, uh, the electric light, but the other thing that he spent a lot of time working on at uh, Metal Park was uh, the telephone and also telegraph uh, systems. So he's doing a lot of different things all at once. And it's not just him, right? I mean, he has a big team. Exactly, yes. He, he, he's very good at attracting uh, uh, very skilled collaborators, uh, machinists, uh, chemists, uh, draftsmen, people who could make uh, mechanical drawings. Mm -hmm. um, he brings these all people all together, um, and the reason why he's able to be successful is that he's get, he's able to get all of these workers to uh, work together to pursue his ideas. He's a team leader. Um, he he definitely sets the agenda um, in the laboratory. Um, the, his workers are dependent on direction from him. But the other, but he also encourages them to kind of think for themselves. He doesn't; they're not they're not factory workers. Um, they're they're expected to be able to kind of um, solve problems, um, you know, creatively and independently, um, even though they are working together. Um, the Metal Park Lab was interesting. If you see pictures of it, and there's actually some pictures of it in the book, 
of uh, it's the, the, the top floor of the lab is just one big empty room um, filled with tables and, and shelves with mm. bottles and all kinds of uh, scientific and technical equipment. Um, the one big room means that they're all kind of in the same space, um, close together. They're all they're and they're able to kind of talk to each other and share ideas and and communicate. So he's very good at creating these environments that uh, foster collaboration and creativity. That that's interesting, and I think somewhere um, in your book you you talked about how he could take techniques. That, that he applied in one industry and used them to solve problems in another? Yeah, um, exactly. He does that often, and that's another um, key part of uh, helping us understand why he's so successful. Um, Edison is, 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 there are inventors that are known for one invention. Um, Edison is, is um, you know, stands ahead of a lot of inventors in this time period because he does a lot of different things, and often all at the same time. And what he's doing is he's actually, uh, as you said, he's taking ideas and concepts from one invention and applying it to to other problems. Uh, so the knowledge that he gains from working on something like, for example, the phonograph, um, you know, he can apply to something like the motion pictures, uh, for example. So um, that that is. Uh, uh, very important to keep in mind when you talk about Edison. He's just—it's not that he's working on the electric light and then he goes on to something else. Um, they're often going on at the same time. But there's a business strategy behind the diversity too, because uh, by doing a lot of different things, if one idea doesn't work out and he's not successful at it, he has other things that he can fall back on. I'd like you to to touch on um, who Edison was connected with at the time. I read that he was um, he was connected with Tesla in some way, and he was friends with Henry Ford. If I'm, I can do both. Yeah. Um, actually, um, well, let's talk about Henry Ford first. Um, they were um, they were close friends the last uh, twenty years or so of Edison's life, um, even though they're in age, they're about a generation apart. Um, and they spent a lot of time together uh, in the teens and 19-teens and the 1920s going on camping trips. And actually, uh, Henry Ford had uh, – uh, uh, Edison had a winter home in Fort Myers, Florida, and Ford wanted to be close to Edison, so he brought the property next door. And they actually, you know, they, they spent time together down in Florida. So they were close friends. And uh, – um, among others, Harvey Firestone, the, 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 the tire manufacturer, was also mm -hmm. a close friend. Um, they didn't have a lot of business dealings together. Um, it was more personal, although Henry Ford and Firestone um, did support Edison's last major research project, the a search for uh, a domestic source of rubber. Now, you asked about Tesla, and uh, there are lots of stories on the Internet today that Tesla and Edison were, were um, bitter enemies, right. uh, rivals. There's actually not a lot of uh, truth. The story, the story is actually a little bit more boring. Um, Tesla did work for the Edison company in the 1880s in New York for a, a brief time um, and was, you know, was working on some things for Thomas Edison um, and then eventually moves on to um, he's able to 
get investors to help him uh, organize his own company to pursue his own inventions. That's typical of a lot of the people who work for Thomas Edison. They would go and work with him for a while, um, you know, try to learn as much as they could, and then they would go on to, to pursue their own uh, ideas. Um, there's actually very little evidence that Edison and Tesla were enemies, and, and, and I have found in the archives here telegrams from Tesla to Edison wishing him a happy birthday. Um, they were certainly aware of each other, um, but there's no real reason to believe that uh, at least Thomas Edison was obsessed with Tesla. Um, so I think the stories that we hear that they were, you know, bitter rivals um, is is a bit misleading. Um, but I will say that um, I think that both Edison and Tesla are important. I mean, we, we definitely ought to understand what each of them are doing. Um, but they're different kinds of uh, inventors and innovators. I think the the direct current, alternating current um, stories are a little too too tempting. Yeah, it's well, you're right, and I think well, there definitely is a, a controversy between alternating current and direct current. Um, but it's not really a struggle between Edison and Tesla. It's more mm-hmm. of a struggle between Edison and George Westinghouse. Um, and th- that story. It, it, it's, it's a reference in the book. There's actually a section there where I talk a little bit about it. Um, it's sensationalized because it eventually leads to the first uh, electrocution of a convicted, this poor man named William Kemmler. Um, and there's a sensational aspect to the story. Um, it gets kind of gruesome. But be, beyond that, it's it's important um, story because uh, it was really a struggle over which distribution system, which system of electricity would be adopted, whether it be direct current or alternating current. Edison believed that direct current, um, which is what his system was based on, was safer than alternating current. That was a very big concern of his. And the reason why he's concerned about that is because in the 1880s, people didn't, most people didn't really know much about electricity. It was a very strange uh, thing to them. And Edison was afraid that if it was perceived as dangerous, then it would be harder to get them to um, agree to put electricity in their houses. Mm. Um, So he's very much interested in the safety issue of it. Um, At the same time, he also wants to protect, you know, his business. Um, So he's going to go after direct current. Um, there's There's a little section in the book that talks about that. And so, and so he did, in a way, um, contribute to the the first electrocution. Um, but but he he makes a point to not to not contribute to development of weapons, if that's right. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's true. He he's he's indirectly involved in that electrocution, and I, I, I'll I'll tell you, and I know this because he he talks about it later. He's actually um, he comes to later regret um, that whole episode. It was a little bit embarrassing for him. Um, but he's, you're talking, the other thing with weapons, I think you're referring to the, his experience during World War One. Um, he spent a lot of time doing research for the Navy. Most of that research was um, aimed at uh, defense of, of shipping against submarine attack. And he recognized that uh, uh, new technologies were changing the way warfare was fought. And there's actually, there's a quote, there's a great quote in a New York Times article where Edison uh, predicted that at some point in the future, um, 
they, you know, we would be able to kill large numbers of people just by pushing a button. And when I read that, I was amazed um, because, you know, he, he couldn't have foreseen nuclear energy or nuclear power. Um, but he kind of got that right. Um, and I think he was a, a, a kind of appalled by that. Um, but his work during World War One was aimed at um, uh, protecting uh, naval ships against the submarine attack. So tell us what we can learn from Edison. What what lessons can we take? Oh, well, there's so many. One of the things, because, the, I mean, the book reminds us that uh, Edison's more than an inventor. He's an innovator. So he's involved in um, creating all these companies to manufacture and market his inventions. Um, one of the things that I think is useful is being able to kind of look back at how he's approaching these problems of, figuring out how to introduce these new technologies and, and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Um, if you're an innovator today and you're facing the same kinds of issues, same kinds of questions, um, having, you know, Edison's experience, um, you know, can be, can be instructive, I think, um, if, if, you, if you look at it. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing. The other thing that I think is, is, is very instructive for, for everybody, not just innovators, is that, um, Edison is really at the center of a uh, technological revolution um, between the 1870s and the 1920s. You think about all the major technologies that define life today, the electric light, telephone, phonographs, motion pictures, the automobile, airplane, radio. They're all developed in that time period. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to understand um, how these technologies influence our lives today, um, it, it, it's important to know where they come from and how society decides which technologies are going to be adopted and used um, is also important to know. So going back and looking at this experience, I think, can, can help us answer a lot of those questions. Do, do you feel that um, innovation has slowed? I mean, it's certainly changed, right? I mean, everything's digital now. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if the approach to innovation has changed with the um, with the field. Well, I think team-based research is still definitely very much um, an influence today. I, I, I don't think that's changed. I think that, um, you know, loan inventors are still relevant, but they're probably not as relevant as they once were um, because uh, it takes a lot of resources in order to be successful at, at innovation. And large-scale organizations have the resources to do that. I think what changes are, you know, um, debates about um, whether it is um, productive to invest money in research and development and innovation. And there are still debates today um, uh, over um, whether or not, you know, companies that spend a lot of money in innovation are um, um, uh you know, are, are in a good position to compete in the marketplace. And there's some people that think so, and there's some people that think, you know, differently. Um, and it goes in cycles. There was a time not too long ago where um, companies were scaling back on, on, you know, spending money on research. Um, and that may change. Um, it depends. You know, these are ongoing questions about, you know, how do you create um, a, a, an innovative, creative um, economy. Um, so the questions that 
Edison Chase and the, and the people he worked with are still very much relevant today. What would you What would you kind of um, highlight as the big things that we we still have from Edison today? Yeah. Well, the the one thing that I would highlight that you that you can't see because it's not a tangible thing, um, but it's more of a relationship or dynamic of how innovation is supported. What what Edison does that no other inventor or scientist or or engineer does in the late 19th century is he makes innovation or invention safe for investors to put their money in. Um, and he does that by creating a reputation as a reliable inventor. You know when you when you see Thomas Edison's name, you, you know that his laboratories are well-equipped and that he's capable of doing what he says he, he's going to do. Um, up to, before Edison, inventors in American culture don't really have that great a reputation as being reliable people, and that is a hindrance to um, to investment. And what Edison does is he says, look, um, I have really great laboratory here. If you give me your money, um, you know, there's a, you have a better chance of getting a return on that. So what he does essentially is he lowers the risk of innovation. Why is that important? Um, it's important because that's still pretty much how we're doing things today, uh, and it leads to this explosive amount of money um, that uh, capitalists are, are willing to put into supporting research and development, and it leads to um, all the innovations that we enjoy today in the in the early 21st century. I I come back to this thought that that he is is um, different than our typical um, image of, of an inventor, you know, alone in their basement, you know, yeah. tinkering with things. Yeah. And, and he even said, I, I was struck by this quote, I am not a scientific man, I am an inventor. Right. Um, which is, yeah. you know, I think you even called him a, a scientific person just, just now. Um, well, he, he relies on scientific knowledge. He's not ignorant of science. Um, what he meant by that was, and, and he may have been wrong about this, but it was his perception that scientists that were pursuing pure knowledge really weren't producing anything practical that people could use. Mm -hmm. It was a way of distinguishing himself from the scientist that was in the laboratory just to kind of understand, you know, how nature worked. But that doesn't mean that he didn't appreciate the value of that of that that pure knowledge to help him you know, apply it to technologies. The best example of that is uh, there's a little section in one of the chapters where I talk about Edison's work on x-rays in the fluoroscope. Um, there was a German scientist, uh, Röntgen, who um, uh, discovered x-rays at the end of 1895, and Edison read about this uh, as soon as it was announced, and he immediately uh, turned his staff to the problem of uh, coming up with um, you know, an x-ray tube that leads to the fluoroscope. So it's a good example of how he um, um, can respond to a scientific development in a practical way. But I, I, I think very much he, he, he's, he personally is not going to engage in um, scientific research just for the sake of, 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 of science. Well, well, we've covered a lot on Edison. Thank you for this crash course. Um, You're welcome. Is there is there anything else that that you feel we might have skimped on? I mean, there was a lot to talk about. 
there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I'd just like to remind people that the book is available uh, everywhere. Um, it's on Amazon. It's at barnesandnoble.com uh, and also your local Barnes & Noble store. And there is an ebook version of it that is available for the Nook. And uh, uh, that is a, a cool um, – the ebook is cool because it has a virtual tour of the West Orange Laboratory. They actually have uh, 360 uh, panel uh, shots of different rooms in the laboratory. So uh, with the ebook, you get a little bit uh, extra. You can actually visit the West Orange Laboratory, and uh, uh, hopefully if you read either the print or ebook, you can come and, uh, and visit the laboratory here in West Orange and uh, see for yourself what the lab was like. Again, that was Leonard DeGraff, and his book is called Edison and the Rise of Innovation. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you can join us next week. In the meantime, you can like us on Facebook or find our blog at grox.net. For Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.